Welcome to Life in the Pit, a podcast about the lives and adventures of instrumentalists within the wonderful world of musical theater. And now, here is your host, David Lane. And hello, everybody. Welcome to episode number 54, and it is good to be with you once again. Um, I am not going to spend very much time on introduction because I have a longer than normal interview and it was it was an interview that was difficult to get as short as it was because it is really crammed full of content. I just remind you once again if you're on an updated iOS you want to make sure uh, that if Apple Podcasts is where you get this podcast that you are following Life in the Pit. It's going to be especially important uh, as our schedule is going to change once we get to July, and I'll be talking about that in the next episode. Uh, nothing really major. Life in the Pit is not going away, but um, the release schedule is going to change from every single Friday to something else. But again, check that out next week for more information. I do want to remind you also, if you're on Apple Podcasts, in addition to following, be very helpful if you haven't already to please leave us a five-star review and uh, you can also find out more about the podcast at davidlanemusic.com slash podcast, where you can also hit that donate button if you haven't. Uh, that is the only means we have for helping with the operating expenses of the podcast. And I do know that uh, the server hosts have to renew at the end of this month. So especially helpful if you haven't done that, if you like, if you find value in the content, much appreciated if you could. Just any any amount is helpful. I'll just go ahead and say that. Let me go ahead and talk about today's guest. Um, I'm talking today to Paul Perfetti, who is a resident in the Boston area. And I, I could tell you all the shows he's done, but it's just a huge list of shows. So uh, we'll, we'll mention probably a few of them in our conversation. I'm focusing on today on the fact that he has done two national tours that have lasted much of his career, um, 42nd Street, first of all, but then also multiple national tours of Les Miserables. And as he mentions, uh, at a bare minimum, he has done 5,000 performances of Les Miserables, but I think he added uh, add the, the two different tours he's done is probably closer to 6,000. So quite a bit and that's not counting all of the regional perform regional theater performances he's done and he plays trumpet which actually makes him the very first designated trumpet player that we've had uh, on this podcast for the most part paul kind of designed this next segment this conversation uh because he had some ideas he's very self-reflective and uh just knowing the general theme of this podcast life in the pit he took that and ran with it and gave me just a whole list of thoughts that he has on various aspects of being a professional musician. And so uh, we decided that what we had here was a list that we're even that we're barely going to scratch the surface of. So I'm going to include the entire list uh, on Instagram in a separate post, uh, probably not right away, but check check there soon. And uh, that list is principles for professional pit musicians. Some really good gems here. If you want to be a professional pit musician, we're going to talk about the things that can make the difference between you having a long career like Paul or being like some of the 
people that he's mentioned that he's seen not come back after messing up. So check this out. It's, it's something you definitely want to hear. Here's my conversation with Paul Perfetti. Paul, thank you for taking time to talk to me today uh, about this really long career that you've had with shows. So, uh, and again, just thank you for taking the time. Well, uh, thanks for having me. It's, uh, um, I feel very lucky to have uh, been involved as long as I have. Um, I didn't have a crystal ball when I started it, didn't know it was going to turn into a career, but uh, it's, it's just uh been fantastic i've 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 been uh i lived the life it was great right (laughs) uh, you know so now i guess we'll we'll go ahead and start with this because i'm looking at this long double column list of shows that you've done and i know that uh that um you're acquainted with harlan who is one of my previous guests and one of the things that he said on his episode was he was trying to do an a through z show list it looks like you're missing a q you're missing an X and a Z, but I think you got um, everything else. I, I you know, um, <laughs> when I sat down to do this list, I um, I didn't quite know what I was gonna what it was gonna look like. Right. Um, and uh, uh, so I was a little shocked myself to to read this, but this was kind of a career list. Oh, yeah. uh, it was fun. It was actually really fun to think it through and actually think about some of these these shows again too. Well, you, really you've cool. got a lot of other letters though. you get a lot of c's a lot of a's you know? <laughs> um well let's just start with um so we're we're gonna go a little bit of a different approach here you know i know a lot of times we spend a lot of time on the autobiographical part and i certainly want to cover part of that but um you you presented an idea for some things that we could talk about and it, and I thought they were great ideas uh, because we've never really done an episode about pit rules for musicians. And you especially have a lot of experience on tours. Uh, you, you've spent a lot of time on Les Mis prior to that. It was 42nd Street. You were yeah. on 42nd Street prior to that. So I'm going to bypass the usual how did you get into music and, and how did you know that this was something that you wanted to do professionally. So let's start with that. How did you, so I'm going to assume you're, you're playing, you're playing in music in school. I'm going to assume probably trumpet and band or orchestra. At, at what point did you decide, uh, this is more than a hobby. I want to do this professionally. Well, um, it does kind of go back to that origin story that, you know, that we all, that we all have my, and I, I can tell it briefly. So yeah. I was not a very sports minded kid. Right. You know, and uh, music, I imagine a lot, some of your some of your interviewees might have had similar stories. So um, I really took to the trumpet. It was something that um, uh, just captured me right away. It was fun and I enjoyed it. And um, uh, because I was interested, I excelled at it. Um, the connection to theater, though, it actually came. It wasn't until years later I kind of saw this. Uh it was kind of a seminal moment. I, I didn't start playing trumpet till the end of end of uh, end of sixth grade. They introduced the kids in my school to uh, band instruments, and um, I'd uh, heard the, you know, all the kids went. We used to go on field trips to hear the local symphony, and I went on my first field trip then, and it was to hear the opera, uh, my local symphony in Minnesota, Duluth uh, 
the Lou Superior Symphony Orchestra. And uh, I'd never heard a symphony live and watch an opera and the curtain open. I heard the orchestra tuning up and, and it, it really captured me. And um, I thought in those moments, looking back was, wow, I'd like to be part of something like this someday. It really, you know, and, and music was a part of every kid's life uh, where I was, where I grew up. Well, anyway, um, so then I took up an instrument, uh, took up the, the cornet, and by 10th grade, I was playing in that symphony orchestra, that nice. same orchestra, and I was playing in that opera company. Wow. And, um, and musical theater began in eighth grade. It was wow. just a regular part of grade school, through high school, through college for me as a student. And, um, and uh, I grew up in uh, Duluth, Minnesota. Okay. I, I got to credit those amazingly dedicated band directors and, um, and uh, all kinds of uh, the local professionals or, you know, businessmen and women who played instruments that encouraged participation and um and i'm friends to this day with with those that are still around i still go back home uh to my hometown and we make music together so um anyway that the through line here is you know you make choices in your career about sometimes you don't realize the choices you make might be directed in some way there might be some through line and in my cases i was i gravitated towards whether it be music theater or opera or Bach cantatas or things with words, it's storytelling. Right. And um, that was it. And it goes back to that seminal moment hearing that opera company mm-hmm. and the whole coming together and music was just a part of it. And I realized, man, I, I am comfortable in that world of storytelling. And I love being a part of, you know, the music, production uh a team right and uh that that that's it it's and i realized look i love symphonies i love playing Mahler and all kinds of things but you know i think it's always been the word the story the whole right you know i <clears throat> we, we may be kind of stepping on one of the rules that we're talking about later on but I think one thing that attracts me, why I do a podcast about pit musicians as opposed to other musicians, it might be why I'm I'm interested in film composers uh, separate from regular composers. Because I think with both of those, with film composers, with pit musicians or session musicians, there's that sense of you are a collaborative storyteller. Um, if you talk to any film composer who has been successful uh for many years i don't think you'll find at least in the modern era i don't think you'll find an exception uh, that they say that they love being a part of telling the story of the film and that they are collaborate collaborator and it's Mm -hmm. not look at what i can do as a composer um i i know this from from experience one of the things that i had to learn to overcome early on was this sense of ego that uh i know what's best for for the film and uh and how are how dare you director uh who doesn't know as much about music question my choices uh for for what should be you know the the right musical example for your film um 
that kind of attitude will not get you far past film school. You have to overcome that if you're a film composer. You have to learn to be part of the process. And likewise, um, if you're a musician who needs the spotlight on you, then you definitely don't want to be a pit musician. <laughs> it's like you, you are part of a whole. It's like there is a, unlike, I mean, they're just like in film, the spotlight is on the actors. And then if, and then if you look off into the side, you'll find the directors and the writers. You have to go way, way deep to find the composer. And, and I think in, in stage, the spotlight is on the actors. And if you, you know, you go back a bit, you'll, you'll, you'll say, well, the, the person who wrote the, the book, you know, and the music, that's, that's pretty close by. And then, um, you know, then you're probably the director, music director, maybe. But, you know, the, all the people who are pulling the chords and changing the costumes and designing the lights and sounds, uh, they're on par with the pit musicians in that you don't see them and you don't even think of them unless you're aware that this really couldn't happen without them. Yeah, I think that's a, uh, really the most, most important. And, you know, occasionally, you know, musicians... Um, um, it's really essential that you realize that you are a part of the, you are a part of the whole and the storytelling. Cause um, well, we've occasionally, you know, you occasionally run into the person who's just in their own little world and they, everything revolves around them. Right. And, and that really is a problem in so many ways, you know, there's, it's a social microcosm as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, um, and there's ways that, you know, well, we're getting into it, but, you know, the repetition aspect, you know, doing a show, if it is a long run of a show, right. repetition is not for everybody, you know, right. we'll, maybe we'll, we'll get into it as we go, but right. Um, yeah, but it is a social microcosm, I should say. Right. Well, let's just, yeah. uh, you know, one more bit of biographical information I just want to cover because we have a lot of music students among our listeners and um, I'm sure a lot of them would like to know, how do I get involved on in a tour and, and, my solution for that is, you know, there's probably a lot of different stories. So let's just share each of them as we get a chance. So how did you get into doing these national tours? What, like, when was, um, was 42nd street your first? Yeah. For, I actually, so uh, my career was a little unusual. It was, um, I, for all the years I've been involved and it was, uh, um, it was only two tours mm -hmm. that I was in, uh, that I was actually on the road for. And uh, they're very different kind of tours. Um, I started with, well, 42nd Street. And I don't know, it was like 1980, well, it was 84, 85, somewhere in there. And um, the uh, 42nd Street had just finished uh, as a national. It was closing in Pittsburgh and the show was being rewritten uh, for a, a road company. I think it might've been still playing concurrent with Broadway. There may have been going at the same time. Um, so they were creating a new orchestration. It was going from the enormous uh, original orchestration down to uh, slightly reduced. And uh, um, anyway, it was a, a friend of mine here in Boston, another trumpeter who, you know, jobs just kind of fell out of trees in those days. I'm sorry, sorry, right. younger viewers right. they, they probably don't want to hear that, but they just kind of, they did look. Right. Um, and my friend said, Hey, Paul, I got offered two shows. I can't do them both. Dream girls and 42nd street. Right. And, uh, so I'm going to do dream girls. You want 42nd street? I said, I'm there. You right. know? 
and now that was a big decision because I was, I was just fin- I've just finished my education here in Boston at the New England Conservatory. My, I was working on my master's there, and I was pretty well established in town already as a freelancer. Um, once again, everybody was working then, right. and um, and I was going to give it up and go, to go on the road, mm. you know. And so that was kind of that was a that was a tough decision. Um, a weekly paycheck. You know, that was calling me. And also it was a Boston band. It was a killer band. I knew a lot of the musicians that were on it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I decided to go with it. 42nd Street. So we went out. It was a bus and truck. So what that means is, you know, we're riding the bus. Right. And um, you're doing one nighters. Mm -hmm. Okay. so that's that's for some tours. That's pretty hardcore uh, touring. Also, there were things that we had like work dues check off. I don't know if people right. who do tour, they know what that is. We take it for granted. The company manager will take the dues out of your check and pay the, pay the local, the unions. That was not a thing. It was just brand new and it wasn't always getting done. And uh, you know, that, that was a, became a kind of a problem later. So anyways, even company managers were working it out with the AFM back right. then. So anyway, that was, real touring. So anyway, the long and the short of that uh, was when the the tour ended, that band, for the most part, became the first Cats pit band. Mm. Okay? Most of those musicians, I was playing third trumpet then, most of those musicians went on and became the first Cats band. Wow. Boom, yeah. they picked up with the conductor and all, and they uh, they went to work for Cats. And I was sort of the odd man out being the third trumpet. They only needed two trumpets on cats. So I got the bug right for, right. for touring. I, and I asked the guys, my colleagues, and they said, well, here, here's the name of the contractor. Go ahead and you know, give him a call. And, and I did call him. Um, I, I can mention his name. He was wonderful. And I ended up working for him for 20 years. Um, Mel Rodman, he's since passed on, but mm-hmm. um it was kind of a strange thing. Um, I learned a lot on that bus and truck because that was, that was some serious touring. Les Miserables was very different. So uh, how did that come about? Um, I was actually auditioned, but I didn't, wasn't told what I was auditioning for. Oh, okay. So I came back after 42nd street, came back to freelance in Boston and my work was primarily classical. Right. Okay. And um, I got a call one day, um, I got a call. I was playing Ice Capades. I got a call, say, uh, from the contractor at the Schubert Theater here in Boston. Mm-hmm. Said, uh, "Geez, I'd like to hear you play." And I said, right. "Okay." And we set up a date to audition. I honestly, God, I thought it was for uh, audition just for the uh, for the sublist at the theater. Right. And um, so I went in, and he had me play for forty five minutes. Wow, it was, it was ridiculously long audition you know everything from how high can you play how low can you play can you play jazz and here was my favorite moment he says uh uh at the time cats was was in in residence mm-hmm. at the theater so he, he says keep playing I'll, I'll be right back and he went up into the pit and he grabbed the lead trumpet book and he brought it down and he put it in front of me and he he paged through to the famous piccolo trumpet solo Mm-hmm. Now, I'd never played Cats, but I, I knew what the music was. And um, he opened it up and he says, uh, I'd like to hear you play this, but uh, 
before you play this, he he informed me, he says, well, the house, I just, before you play this, I want you to know that the house lead trumpet player, he's never missed a note on this. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so he was trying to shake me during the audition. Right. And I said, would you like to conduct me? Uh, he says, certainly, certainly. And he picked up his pencil and he conducted me and he was playing with the tempo to see if I could stay with him. Anyway, I played the fanfare and and he he smiled and he looked at me and he noticed I wasn't playing it and it went just fine. And he, uh, he noticed I wasn't playing a, a piccolo trumpet. So what kind of, what kind of trumpet is that you're playing? I said, well, it's a, it's a trumpet in F. Right. F. What do you have? To, and I think that solo, I don't remember. It's like a, in a bunch of sharps. So that solo, what do, you, what do you have to do to play that? I said, well, I put it in bass clef and I read it up a step. And uh, and he just turned to me and he goes, you're my man. <laughs> and I thought, great, I made the sub list at the theater. Right. And he shook my hand and I walked away. Just that was it. That was it. Mm. And a couple of weeks later, I got a, he called me up and said, uh, I'm calling you because uh, uh, Les Miserables, Broadway, new Broadway show is coming to town. It'll be the first national tour. And I want you to be my lead trumpet player for the show. Hmm. So what had happened, it was um, the music team from uh, from Les Miserables had, um, during the previews, I guess they, they maybe some of the outings with the musicians didn't work out so well. Um, I don't want to... Um, uh, mentioned too much about that, but it prompted them to, in advance, go to where the first national was going to open in Boston. Right. And they were, uh, the band was secretly being auditioned. Wow. Basically. And uh, th- uh, they chose a number of musicians from the house orchestra. And for the remaining musicians, they had advised the contractor that they wanted classically oriented players. Hmm. In this case, because this was a uh, an opera, right? Name is Rob is a pop opera, and it, it they had enough experience to feel that this was the the direction they they wanted to bring to it, right? So it was an artistic call. I had no real connection to the theater prior to that, um, so I was and I was very thankful. That was a wonderful uh, uh, job. And that was a first national, first city, hugely exciting, hugely exciting. Um, that was it. I was, but of all my colleagues, I think I was, I'm the only one I know that was auditioned uh, for the job. And uh, it was pretty nerve wracking. I have to say Uh, the contractor, uh, Mel Rodden stood behind my chair at the, uh, (laughs) at the the union hall with all the, everybody putting it together for the first time on, you know, and it was I suppose he wanted to know if he had to, he was going to keep me around. <laughs> right. Um, so how many, how many shows, how many years, how, I mean, what way do you count? How, how many performances did you get out of Les Mis? Well, um, I can tell, well, uh, I opened and closed uh, the first national and the third national um, tours. I, I did not count the shows, but I will, I do know for a fact that the, uh, the third national tour uh, played 7,061 performances. Wow. <laughs> I safely played over 5,000 of those. And that was just on that tour. And then add about nine months on the first national tour. So, um, 
I, yeah, that was a lot. <laughs> that was a lot. I assume you've memorized the book by this point. Well, you know, I, uh, <laughs> look, I, yeah, I know. I think I have it memorized. But that being said, I, I do have to comment on memorization because right. um, I watched that happen over the years. The occasional musician would come in and have it, quote, have it memorized. Right. I'm going to give you my cautionary tale about uh, memorizing the book. Okay. Um, and uh, as a matter of fact, my uh, one of my good buddies here in Boston, he's a, one of the local lead, lead trumpet players. He uses this tale, actually, right. to kind of make the point. Um, when I was on 42nd Street, uh, I was cocky. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, playing the book and I thought, I got this down. I can do this. And I close the book and I'm playing it from memory mm. until the moment when uh, I was lost mm. and, and I panicked. And it was during the, if you know, 42nd street is during the big ballet number, the big 42nd street finale closing. Right. Mm. And, um, I'm scrambling through the book to try to find out where I need to be. Right. And of course the panic is just going up mm. and, and I could just slot basically slide into home plate. Right. <laughs> and, and uh, my partner, he just, the lead trumpet player, he didn't say, he just looked at me and went, uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, like, you know, just rookie. Right. <laughs> and, um, and that was it, you know, I was completely embarrassed being a hot shot. I was absolutely humbled. They weren't paying me to mess it up like that. Right. And I never did that again. Right. I never did that again because for all of those reasons, you know, they're not paying you to screw it up. And, um, and what's the point? And here's the other thing. This is what I learned on Les Miserables with with all the repetition, you know, you know, learning it in your head is one thing, but then what I found was the players that do that, they're not listening anymore. They're playing what they have in their head. Right. You know, what's on the page is representative, but that's also not what's in the moment. Right. That is not what's actually happening in the moment. Uh, similar things is putting a tuner. Uh, I'm sorry if you've got listeners who are <laughs> going to rumble at this, but putting a tuner on the stand while you're playing is making is a, stone in a river it's the same effect there's a psychological thing that goes with that right that's you there's a musician without ego you put a tuner on the stand and it sends this sends this psychological message throughout the pit i'm right therefore you guys must be wrong Mm -hmm. you know this messes with people right there is a psychological component to with your colleagues right you know so you're not in the moment in your moments you've you got you asked me if i have les miserables memorized um yeah i probably do but i always had the book open right always and and it's there to refer to and i and um and also listening just being absolutely mindful uh, at all times right um it's just a great place to be you can Playing perfect shows night after night can be effortless. Right. Effortless. Right. So uh, we, we kind of slid into there. So one of your first rules of uh, the pit. So I kind of I kind of in my head, I thought this was uh, rules for touring mus- musicians. But why don't we just say for 
for professional pit musicians, I guess would be. So yeah, I wouldn't call them rules. I would just say they're sort of just general principles. General, uh, yeah. Principles. Yeah. General. Yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll make that correction. So uh, yeah. Principles for uh, professional pit musicians. And so the one you just mentioned is one that you called memorization tuners and other stones in a river. I like that phrase. So uh, are there other stones in a river that you feel like people have to watch out for? Um, well, those are, those are sort of obvious ones that, uh, uh, I mean, that you see exercised uh, quite often, right? you know, um, well, I kind of thought, you know, well, it goes hand in hand with that. Uh, and, and it wasn't, you, you didn't present the, the story where I, where I was expecting, you can have your book memorized, but that doesn't mean that everything's going to go smoothly. Like, um, I can't tell you how many times uh, we've had to jump a section because oh, yeah. the actor on stage, you know, uh, forgot a verse or something like that. And uh, as soon as you try to play from memory from that, it's like that's not how your brain has constructed this. It's like you kind of feel like you know the music, but but what it is is you know a sequence. And it seems yeah. like sequence is interrupted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's the coolest thing. The coolest thing is when the band and the conductor, as they just, they can make the correction in the mm -hmm. moment because they're just so attuned to it. Right. Um, to, you know, and, and, you know, when you get a band that's played thousands of shows together, right. I mean, um, you feel things as like an organism. Right. And making the jump can be, can be, completely painless just right. after, no there's no panic involved uh in that and um but that that's an awareness uh that's a level of sensitivity that of course if you are just starting out with a show you wouldn't necessarily have where you can look up for a visual but um you know over time uh, you know as a as a pit musician yourself you develop this sort of show sense Right. Um, you know how to come out of safety properly. You know, uh, right. you just revamp. Um, you just have a feel for it. You know what to listen to the, the formulas, as you say. Right. But anything can happen, um, and and uh, that's kind of the kind of the fun stuff too. <laughs> so we're on the performing section of this list of principles. I'm going to read these, and then we can just kind of elaborate on them. So as you just as we just talked about memorization tuners and other stones in river. The other others that you listed were music preparation, musical mm -hmm. expectations of the job, the hierarchy from musician to music supervisor. And and one that I really like here, maybe we'll start with this one. Music is not a democracy. What yeah. Do, what, what would you mean by that? Well, it, 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 it does still come down to, to a hierarchy. Uh, right. You have a we have these musical um, look there. We have a. Uh, uh, musically speaking, you might have your, your your lead player, and then you've got your section player. So you've got within the musical uh, framework, right? But I mean, the the conductor has a music supervisor who tells him what to do, mm -hmm. and the conductor tells you what to do. In the end, you make the sound as a pit musician. Right. So you do have this. You have this creative. You're, nobody makes a sound, but you make that sound. So you have control over those things. Um. But there, we're there to, um, uh, you know. So you guys top down, and it, and it, it, it's not you're not taking a vote, and you know um, the 
ability to change one's mind has to be present at all times. Using uh, Les Miserables as an example, not each tour was exactly the same, but that was by design. They made a point to say, we don't do it like this company, like that company, like that. The music supervisor came out and changed their mind. The conductor has to change the way they do it. They tell you, no, play it short instead of long. Right. And as a pit musician, I've seen it happen. Um, it's a waste of time to say, but before you told me to do it this way. Right. Yeah. Um, no, they, they have to have the ability to change. And your your job is to uh, be flexible. Right. And right. to, you know, uh, execute it and look up and you get the high five and you're good to go. Right. Because um, everybody you're there because you're the, you're already proven to be the right person for that job and 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 you're a you're a good citizen and you play well or you wouldn't be there right right and um and they need you to play that book right <laughs> and if you're playing that book everything is golden right you know and that's that's the uh that's kind of the cool part of it, you know. And I you tell, can, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. And I tell this to cast members uh, on the first rehearsal. Whenever I do a show that's got an actual ensemble, I say, um, "Now I'm going to go over some parts. I'm going to uh, assign you to things." And I said, "But everything that every note you take, put it in pencil, because everything is subject to change." I said, "Now by the time we get about two, three weeks out." Uh, you know, we're probably not going to be making changes because we need to get used to what we have. But uh, but I like to experiment as the music director, and that that'll go down to the pit too. You know, it's like uh, I might need to hear how things are going. Oh yeah. Before yeah. you know, and and you know, this also is a composer's mentality. I can write what to play, but once I heard it, hear it played, I might make some changes. You know, and this happens, mm-hmm. by the way, if you're when you're in the process of doing a show. So by the time your episode comes out, uh, I will have presented episode number 50, which is a conversation between me and the writers of the musical that I'm arranging with the Collins boy. And, you know, we just talk about, uh, you know, part, one of the big secrets to to the success of any show is workshopping it. And, and you hear it, you hear other people sing it, you hear musicians play it and changes happen (laughs) um yeah it's like uh the the only the only drafts of the show that i've done have involved me and a cellist and um half of everything got rewritten on the spot because once i heard it played and once i heard how it how it blended with the show itself i was just like okay well we have some changes to make and and if you are the cellist in that situation you know you you have to be flexible and just re- recognize this part of the growth of the creative process. That's actually a whole lot of fun. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I enjoy that, that part of it. And, uh, you know, the, the, it's the details, right. you know, you get into details. That's, that's, that's actually good stuff. Right. Um, um, kind of related to performing, you have a little section, you call it the Zen section. And you already mentioned one of these already you said repetition is not for everyone <laughs> it's essential to turn tune it to your advantage you also talk about you know repetition another phrase you use is autopilot it's the application yeah. of mindfulness and observation let's just talk about this this section you know of 
you know, for someone who has played, uh, I'm sorry, what did you say? Like 5,000 performances of the same show. Yeah. Uh, so, so you have plenty to say about doing the same thing over and over. So what are, what are just elaborate on some of that? So you're right. Uh, doing something so many times is, uh, uh, you have to kind of grapple with that. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I've seen me, I've seen where musicians were, were not comfortable with that. They, that, that mentally it, it made, they realize that the road's not for them. Right. You know, like a real, real long run. Uh, hopefully they realize that and do everybody a favor and, and, um, you know, exit the situation. But, um, so if you, you know, if you think about, uh, it's how you train yourself, how you, how you, you teach yourself. Uh, let's, let's use an analogy. If uh, somebody, you're driving a car, somebody runs out in front of you, what do you do? You slam on the brakes, mm-hmm. right? You didn't have to think in that moment, right? right? But somewhere way back in your training and driver's ed, you had to practice moving your foot off the gas and onto the brake. Right. Even for a minute, you had to learn, you had to create a kinetic memory for that. Right. But now you've trusted it enough that instinctively, without even thinking, boom, your foot is on the brake because somebody ran out in front of the car. Right. So you have to rely on the kinetic memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and then let it happen. Yeah. So, um, there's also the, there's also part of this that if you tell yourself every day, if I don't, if I don't get in my hour warm up, I can't play. Well, that becomes really self-fulfilling. I mean, it, it, you have the danger of that becoming really self-fulfilling. Right. And I've seen that in action. You can turn that the other way around. My view was, I played this show a lot of times. I know how to play this show. I trust how to play this show. What I'm going to do tonight is what I did this afternoon, which is what I did last night, which is what I did the afternoon before that. Mm-hmm. I love being in this chair playing this show. Right. I, I love it. I feel it. I'm in, as soon as that downbeat starts, I'm in that canoe and my oars are in the water. Right. Okay. And I'm not counting measures anymore. Right. And I'm not glued to, you know, uh, you know, you know, you probably know musicians will often read a book or a magazine or something in the pit right. in between phrasings, phrases. It doesn't mean you're not engaged. Right. Actually, you are engaged. Your mind is engaged. You're not. You're not counting bars, which is not in, not engaged in the same way. Right. You know, you can feel where you are organically in the wave of what's going on, especially right. in a continuous throughput, like like uh, like an opera. Yeah, I like the phrase you said: riding the wave of perfect shows, night after night. Yeah. 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 And so, yeah. You know. Uh, you know. I, I have a complicated, I don't know, uh, I have complicated reactions to the to the phrase perfection, and it's affected kind of how I've taught about taught it over the years. Uh, I in general, I think perfection is a harmful approach just because I, I think excellence is great, but perfection, I think, is a trap because when you you shoot for perfection, you fall short of that. 
I, I yeah, think you're that, absolutely I, right. And, and you probably, a, will, fall, and you probably will fall short of that. <laughs> yeah, um, no, you're absolutely right. I, I Good point. Good point, right. David. Um, yeah. When I teach students, though, uh, you know, because I have to, I've struggled with this as a pianist, and then I've, I've tried to kind of take what I've learned and apply it to students. Um, you know, I, I grew up with the idea that, you know, that perfection or, or like a perfect performance was kind of out of reach. And to kind of treat mistakes more casually than I should, but but a musician who's being, you know, paid to play, or, you know, and, and especially one to do the same show thousands of times, really can't treat mistakes casually. So there has to be that per, pursuit of excellence. And one of the things that, that I've, I've used with my students before is, uh, you know, when, when you're learning to ride a bicycle, you have kind of a high standard of, of excellence on that because, you know, your mistake is that, it'll cost you maybe a skin a skinned knee or you know or or you cut your elbow when you fall off the bike i said mm-hmm. when you get to the point where you're driving a car you're going to have a very high standard of excellence because yeah you might you know it, there might be something where uh oops you kind of brushed against the curve a little bit you know <laughs> or the curb a little bit when you're uh when you're driving but but you absolutely don't want to fail to come to a stop on time at a red light <laughs> or, you know, a stop sign. Uh, th- there are things that, you know, you don't want, you, you can't do this wrong, you know. And, and of course, the, the thing is, like, everybody everybody who skydives has 100%, uh, if they're alive, <laughs> they've yeah. been 100% perfect. <laughs> Um, you know, so perfection, you know, so a lot of times what you have to do is you have to raise the stakes, you know, in your practice is, is to say, so I always, I always tell students this, pretend that when you're like, if you're learning your scales, you know, so I say, you know, I don't, I don't say do this on pieces of music, but I say, when you're trying to learn your C major scale or, or whatever scale, pretend that the wrong note has an explosive attached to it. It's like your piano is going to blow up. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, so now what kind of care are you going to take before, you know, so it's okay to stop and think about it. Am I sure I want to play this note? Um, And and we come up with games like that all the time. So it's, it's that approach. So I really like that, um, you know, perfect or, you know, or, or, you know, if you, if you're like me, change that word to excellent. So excellent shows. Uh, but you know, there, I'm sure there are some mind games that you have to do to come up with keeping that standard very yeah, high. I guess, yeah. You know, I would call this, it's really, um, I should say being in the zone night after night, Nice. you know, yeah. you know, if you're in a state of mindfulness, that might not be thinking about what every note that you have to play. See, that's the part that you've already learned. You've already taught yourself, you know, how to phrase it. You know what the note is, you know, what the note length is, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, what, what the um, emotional import of the phrase is, what, what, what they're after in terms of what's happening in the show. And those things are, they're given. So if you don't have to actually apply yourself to those directly, the things that you, want to be mindful of might in fact be your your physicality right your how you're sitting in your chair your your upper body in terms of you know is it 
your relaxation, mm-hmm. uh, these other sort of extra musical things that are really essential for your um, ability to uh, carry out your musical task, you know, with ease. And um, and I often found that if you put yourself in that place, uh, in other words, observe yourself performing while you're performing. Right. Imagine yourself, look at yourself in your mind's eye while you're actually playing. Right. Take stock. And when you do that, um, you, it sounds weird, but you can actually fix things before they break. Right. Right. And that, that is that, that is that, that zone, that is that place. Right. And, and that, uh, that's a wonderful place to be. And then you're never, when you're in that place, you're not, you're you're being as efficient as you can be because that is your <laughs> that is your zone and that uh, zone is efficiency and it's also you feel engaged with the moment right that's in the moment that is and and autopilot is allowing that to happen autopilot's not a frozen thing in that moment it's right. actually it's actually engaged with the you know uh, with the here and now autopilot is not necessarily See, there's an oxymoron in that word, yeah. but uh, you got to trust what you've taught yourself. You know, that's a uh, 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 kinetic memory, you might say, and yeah. there's a lot that's kind of built into it. But then you got to get out of your way and then just be in the be in that moment. Right. And, yeah. Yeah. The the <laughs> there's a book that I was given when I graduated high school. It's called the uh, the Inner Game of Music, and uh, I, I had the inner game of tennis. Is right. that the same? Well, that's the original. That's the original book. The inner game. Yeah, my game teacher of taught me out of that book. Right. Um, <laughs> the, uh, there was a bassist. Uh, I was. I can't remember. I'll say. I'll say. I'll get the names wrong in just a moment. But but he collaborated with the uh-huh. original author of the inner game for, of tennis to to adjust it for uh inner game of music. And I think it came out in the either late eighties or early nineties. Yeah, I think it was Timothy Galway, I think wrote that. Yeah. So Barry Green yeah. was, was the other name. So he was a bassist uh-huh. and, uh, and it's probably the same principle. It talks about self one and self two. So self one is the, uh, what I call the sports commentator. It's like, ah, did you, did you see that, uh, <laughs> Did you hear that mistake, you know, that he just made? It's like, uh, and, and you're thinking about that while the music is going forward. You're, you're three measures ahead of where you just made that mistake, but you're still talking about that. Oh mistake. yeah. Yeah. And that's the voice <laughs> you have to turn that off. Self two though, is the, um, it observes everything, but non emotionally. It's the, Hmm, that was interesting. Uh, you know, and, 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 you know, you might be even self-aware. It's like if you're a brass player, like, oh, you know, my embouchure is about a third lower right now. Let's see if I can make that adjustment, you know, uh, or or something like that. Or, um, uh, oh, my, my palms are a little sweaty. Let's see if I can, like, dry them off. That might help my fingering, you know, <laughs> you know, just some. It, but you're observing things that are going on, but you're not. That was dumb. You know, you're not making all of these stupid, <laughs> you know, these these. uh you're not making all of these judgmental opinions about what's happening. You're just aware that it's going on. And that's kind of the mind, the zone, you know, that, that the authors recommend that you seek. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, um, I, I was very fortunate. I had a teacher, my, uh, 
uh, who, who his approach was, I'm going to help you learn some tools that you could, so you can teach yourself so right. that you don't need me anymore. They were tools of empowerment, basically, you know, how to problem solve the music and, um, and uh, then, then really trust yourself. Uh, no, we've got these demons that sit on our shoulder and are very self-judging all the time. Uh, we don't need that. Right. <laughs> None of us need that. Um, so, so I'm going to combine the next two categories, social considerations and personal space. So uh, I guess the, the, the one that stands out the, the most here is playing well in the sandbox, you know, respect in all collegial interactions. But let me just read a few of these others and we'll just, you know, maybe t elaborate a little bit. Uh, I like how you say, you know, the, the crew is your friend. Um, oh, I mean, right at the top here, the importance of genuinely practicing basic respect and recognition throughout your full company of colleagues and, and administrators and support staff. Um, I love rule number one, never touch the crew's food unless invited. And rule two, see, see rule number one. Um, and then I guess the last one I wanted to point out, uh, last two, is taking in the big picture and setting a positive tone in the pit community. I mean, there's so many things here, but I, I think if I, if I wanted to elaborate on, like, some of these, I would say, let's just talk about playing well in the sandbox and taking in the big picture. What What are your thoughts on on those? You know, your relationships with everybody uh, in the, in the in a company uh, really do matter. Nothing happens all by itself. Um, right. Just take a musician. Uh, a musician's. Uh, you you get off the bus. You go into the theater. Right. Your road box is perhaps in a very convenient space for you. Mm -hmm. That didn't just happen all by itself, you know. Um, now, sometimes it might not be so easy to get that box to that particular space. Or, you know, we, or you see one musician maybe yelling at somebody because their stuff was out in the front of the house right. and not in down by the pit, right? Um, I just found that... Um, uh, You've got to you've got to really create a social uh, family, right? Amongst uh, amongst uh, all of your colleagues, and um, and that comes down to you know how do you interact with them? Uh, the crew really is your friend because they do so much for you that you don't even see, right? Uh, I'm just talking about you know a musician, but then there's the dresser behind the scene, um, you know where there were it's you all of this happens all of this happens because of this collaborative uh people brought their talents to this show we have the same goal to put this show on and uh, there are people who have artistic talents and people have these mechanical talents and administrative talents um and it's all necessary for it to go on i don't know i would i would hope that every musician just takes a moment to realize right uh the importance of this um you getting into turf wars i've seen this happen um and maybe you've heard stories of musicians on broadway mm -hmm. where this has happened you know sometimes an inch or two of space in a pit can become a fighting matter mm -hmm. between yeah. colleagues very dangerous right we're all in the pit yep and inches, inches may matter. Um, everybody wants to get in a comfortable enough position so that they can perform. And um, 
so does the next guy or the guy who's got a problem. So we say, what can I do for you? Right. You know, that, that maybe it'll work for both of us. Right. And, uh, or if somebody's too loud, um, not everything is an affront. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's how you address this, these things with your, with your colleagues. It really does matter. Um, on the business standpoint, um, you know, maybe you, you don't, uh, maybe you write something down and hand it to somebody, your company manager or something like that. It doesn't all have, does all have to be taken care of now. Right. And, and people are all, uh, going about their business. Um, but, uh, a big part of this is, uh, I think really is the crew because often they're, they can seem into invisible yeah. to a musician who's concerned with their, their artistry. Right. I would just ask that their colleagues not do that. I was very lucky. My, um, uh, my tour, man, I just thought we got along pretty darn well. Not that there weren't any skirmishes. There's right. always going to be some skirmishes, but we got along, uh, really well. Uh, and, there were some that were, you know, there from the beginning to the end. I was one who, you know, having opened and closed two companies, you know, I was as proud on the first day as I was on the last day. I mean, right. and vice versa. Um, and and feel, feel like I made friends for life with right. uh, with my colleagues. It was that, just that kind of an atmosphere. Um, so, but I've, we've seen pits go sour um right for 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 different reasons so i, right. I kind of i don't know if i got the right. any of that it was kind I, of a broad no I, I feel like um you've talked a lot about uh i i feel like if we if you just apply everything that that we've said so far uh you're going to follow into the next step which is keeping the job you know i think of just keeping a sense of perspective remembering that you're a collaborator and uh, taking a professional approach, you know, that's going to be fine. But you do have a section called losing the job. And you, and you say that you've seen it happen more than once and that it's, uh, it's not, it's not pretty and can be corporate and clinical. Well, um, yeah. Usually um, the, you know, when I've seen that happen, it's, it's uh, the person who probably should have left the tour because they're starting to lose their mind. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then acting in strange ways. Right. And, mm -hmm. And back in the day, um, our contractor uh, used to come out if, if somebody was perhaps getting a little bit uh, odd. Right. <laughs> they might, he might come out and say, or make a phone call, say, you will, you will take a vacation. Right. You know, uh, that's giving you, giving you a leash. Uh, but I did, it, it did happen in one occasion where, well, a, a, a musician um, did lose their position uh, because they uh, went into the pit mm -hmm. during a load-in and swung their instrument around. This is while it's all getting loaded in. Uh, this is early in the day. Most of the musicians are not there, so it, it involved a uh, um, it involved one of the rhythm section mm -hmm. and uh, swung an instrument around. And said, "This is my space," mm. and the prop man who set up the pit didn't particularly care for that. Right. <laughs> and the prop man makes a phone call who makes a phone call, makes a phone call. And I take it. This was the tip of an iceberg with this particular musician. Right. And, um, 
they made a change. Mm. And the next week, that musician wasn't there. Yeah. And uh, it was a very important uh, instrument in the pit. Um, the sub was already had already been hired to come out from New York. Right. The road musician's road box was already on his way home, already on the way home. And when he went to pick get his paycheck on Thursday, because you get paid every Thursday in this case, um, the, his ticket home was there, you know. Uh, so it was um, kind of a shock. And that's how it was done. And then the new musician was there the next week in the next city. Right. Um, that was uh, kind of eye-opening. But I, I realized that was the tip of an iceberg in this right. case. It was a personal issue. Right. Um, um, I think I think what I'm going to say here for the sake of time, um, yeah. we're, we're going to cut. We're going to touch on just a couple more of these. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to type type these in kind of a a list form. Uh, some of the ones that we haven't talked about. And I'm going to post this to uh, the Instagram and the Facebook page as well as Twitter so that, you know, people can uh, maybe even uh, even a link in the show notes just that people can can follow these. And they just call these yeah, the principles for professional pit musicians. Um, I do want to talk about you. You have a section just for people who on who are on tour, the travel. And uh, and I'll talk about, you know, some of these also in the notes. But uh, you, you say, yeah, you know, you got to say yes or no about roommates, balancing privacy and saving money. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, but you have one that I wanted to just ask you about. You've got it in quotes, navigating by water tower. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have to give my give credit or credit is due on that. I love that phrase. Right. And that was my uh, my buddy, Jeff, Jeff Johnson, a horn player, mm -hmm. whom uh, we started together on 42nd Street and we ended together on Les Miserables. So nice. he has uh, and he's been touring even more than I have. Wow. I mean, he went out and continued uh, uh, touring as well. And he was on that he was on that that catch band as well. So Jeff Johnson, yeah. that was his navigate. That was his uh, term. And I think he might have, you know, he used to read Blue Highways. You know, he was into taking the little roads. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, and I I shared that with him. There were some of us who, uh, you know, you've, it's a different personality. Some people want to get point A to point B. Boom. They want to get to the new city, get set up in their hotel or whatever. Right. And, right. and I love to go to the ghost towns. I mean, he would call it traveling by water, you know, navigating by water tower. Right. Taking the little road. And, you know, there's a mindset. Um, when when you've been on the road for years, you go back to places that you know. Right. You know where the movie theaters are. You know where the Greasy Spoon is. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and, you know, you still got to get your laundry done. You got to do all yeah. the things that you have to do. And so, you know, the choices that we make. Sometimes you want to save a buck. Sometimes you just want your privacy. Sometimes you want to travel in your car by yourself. Sometimes you want to have your buddy come with you. Right. And so what I learned about some of these, these things are the flexibility to do that. Uh, on Les Miserables in particular, we all had the, we all helped each other out. Uh, somebody might've scoped out, uh, you know, the extended stays, you know, and worked out a deal mm -hmm. for, you know, for us, um, uh, for those of us that drove, um, yeah, right. by the way, some musicians travel to company, some drive, drive their cars. Right. They do that because the company allows them to do that. Right. But with Les Miserables, we, we, we traveled, um, a week was a pretty much the shortest stay that we would do. Mm -hmm. 
so um, we would, uh, uh, when you have these understandings, you, you can go in and out of these uh, scenarios as you see fit. If in the middle of the week, you got a call from a cousin to go off and stay with them, no hard feelings, you know, with whoever it is you're going to part company with. When you leave that flexibility and you can enjoy the touring life on your terms, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I guess that's a, so I guess that's my, my message for musicians would be to really define what it is you want to take away from this experience. How do you want to experience this? Do you want this to be a grind or do you want to enjoy, do you want to in, enjoy this? Right. Um, you know, um, uh, what is your balance, your life away from the show? Right. Feel like, um, let's, let's elaborate on this real quick. So being away from home versus local career. So something that, you know, if you're going to be a professional musician, you have to decide, yeah. uh, do you want to be a traveler versus a local musician as it relates to employment? And you've got a, you've got a phrase in quotes here. You can't be where you are not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was a that was a, a a really a life's lesson that I got on that from a, from a bass player on Forty Second Street. Um, goes back to that goes back to that Forty Second Street. Uh, having I had left Boston, um, had given up my career. I was worried about my career because now I'm on the road, even though I'm playing in a great band. And and he said to me, um, he he seemed much old. He seemed like an older guy. Um, he seemed ancient to me, but he was probably, you know, my age now, you know, but right. uh, at the time, but um, he said to me, Paul, Boston was there long before you got there. It's going to be there long after you're gone. Right. He says, man, he said, look around. Uh, you're, you're playing with a great band. You're seeing America uh, you know, you're getting paid every week, man, right. you're, man, life, your life's good. You're swinging. Right. He says, you can't be where you're not. Right. And when my brain got behind that message, it was this weight of, of you're, you're so right. I, I can't worry about someplace I'm not. Right. I'm here in this moment. Right. And I, it was like letting go of, mm-hmm. of uh, the weight of the career yeah. in this, this other town. I can't right. worry right. about that. I got to stop worrying about that and enjoy where I am. Oh, right. I'm thankful for that advice um, because that carried me all those years on Les Miserables. I right. was in the moment right. on those. I wasn't worrying about Boston. At the same time, I want to kind of, point out to that balance and this was just a luck of the draw i think my tour there my boss understood because he had been a long time touring musician he understood the value of time off and keeping your head clear and also doing other things informs your work as a as a pit musician right if they keep you locked into that job you're going to burn out mm-hmm Many people do. So he was he was fine with a vacation and on a tour of that size, as long as they had somebody in your chair who they approved, had been vetted, uh, he was good with that. They oh, they were good with that, right? So um, they let me come and go as much as I wanted. Right. 
pretty much as much as I wanted. And I took advantage of that. So in this case, I kept my career in Boston in in uh, early music. You might see from some of my work that it was involved right. a lot of classical, particularly early music, period instrument stuff, which is another passion of mine. So I was able to stay fully involved in my in my work in early music in Boston and then go back out on the road and with my tours and go do that back and forth for all of those years. So when, when the tour finally ended, unlike some of my colleagues, um, and I didn't know this was going to happen, but I was able to stay seamlessly in the world of the period instrument stuff that I've been doing all those years. Mm -hmm. So I had a career to come back to here in Boston where uh, unfortunately some of my colleagues who had given it up completely, they did not have a career to go back to. They had to start over wherever it is that they went. Right. Um, I I think your last category, I I don't know that it really needs any elaboration, but I'd love to just, you know, just say it for those who don't read it. Um, Big picture takeaways to consider. So um, how do you want to be remembered throughout your community of friends and colleagues? Not everything should be transactional. Relationships might just develop to friends for life, but nothing lasts forever. Um, In the end, your good work in nature should speak for itself. And the last one was recommendations can often come from colleagues who do not play your instrument. So I just think it's just little great bits of advice. Um, uh, this, this I, I really feel like this could have stretched into a two-part episode. We, 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 there's so many things that we could talk about, uh, but I think we get a lot of really good things here. Um, I guess the last question I'll have for you is what, um, when things open up again, you know, as, a, as it looks like we're at least heading that way, uh, what, what will your next projects be, or do you know yet? Um. No, I don't really know. Right. <laughs> the same boat as every. I'm in the same boat as every other musician, and um, in that, uh, you know, it all went away. Right. And uh, um, looking forward to it coming back. It's gradually starting to come back. Uh, right. Some live work, and of course, we've all been doing more, um, more virtual work. And um, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to doing that. Um, I'm not doing as much contracting work, but I've decided, um, uh, given that we just went through, I'm not, I'm less interested in doing that. Right. I was doing quite a bit of contracting and, um, uh, the pandemic has just taught me some things about that, that, um, I'm not sure that I want to be a part of anymore. So, um, and we've all uh, maybe we've all sort of entertained the idea of perhaps there's other things in addition to my music making. I'll always be a musician. Right. Um, but there might be some other things out there that uh, um, I might enjoy floating that would float my boat in a different way. Maybe bring in a little bit of bacon. Right. <laughs> you know? uh, that would be cool, too. Um, so I'm I'm really open to a lot of possibilities and, um, you know. So nice. I'm just kind of keeping it, keep, keeping it open. Right. Well, we'll look, you know, look forward to just keep keeping up and, uh, and, uh, you know, seeing what happens next, probably, probably be a year from now before we know what everybody's doing. But, uh, I mean, I, I, I accepted a, a show for music directing. Um, pro- can't probably can't say what it is yet because the theater hasn't announced it, but, but it's mm. set for spring of next year. So, 
Yeah, I mean, well, that's a full year away, but, you know, it's just nice to know that, it, that it's there. So, <laughs> yeah. I wish you, I mean, I wish you all the best on that. Um, yeah. Will it, will it be a local produced? Or yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's local. Yeah. And it, it'll be a small show. And, you know, so it's, it, it's almost more recreational than professional, but it's just nice to have that foot back in the door. So, mm. oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I work with a local theater company here. I just, I just love it. They're also small. They're a three quarter space uh, theater. And um, uh, so you've got that and the, the band is usually behind the scene up on a, on a platform. And uh, often, often we're completely remote, you know, where the music director doesn't is behind the whole thing. And all you've got is the camera, everything like that. But um, man, isn't, isn't, isn't the pit a great place to be? Oh yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> great. All right. Yeah. Uh, well, again, we went a little long, but I thought this was a great, great conversation. So uh, thank you, Paul, for taking time to talk with me today. You know, my I, I have to say I'm, I'm very sorry for I'm, I'm a bit of a rambler. I was. Oh, no. <laughs> my I'm very non sequitur in so many things. So that's part of the reason why I wrote some things down. Right. Uh, but uh, because I can ramble. Oh, no, that's fine. <laughs> Uh, much appreciated. Uh, thank you. And that wraps up episode number 54. Um, stay tuned next week on Friday, June 25th. It'll be episode number 55. And I'll be commemorating one year that this podcast has been on the air. Just saying a special thank you. Uh, that will be a different type of episode. Um, it'll, it'll be a much shorter episode than this past week's. Um, but do check in, uh, just want to just basically reflect on some of my favorite moments, uh, some of the things that I've learned in one year of this podcast. So check that out, please, next week here on Life in the Pit. As a reminder, if you want to follow what's coming up next, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Life in the Pit Pod. You can follow me on Instagram at David Lane Music or on Twitter or Facebook at David M. Lane Music. As always, a very special thank you to Mark Parolo for his cover art and to Bill Cisna for providing the introduction to this podcast. The theme music is composed and performed by David Lane. You can find out more about this podcast, leave feedback, or leave a donation at davidlanemusic.com slash podcast. Once again, please rate and review on the Apple Podcast app and please share with your friends. Thank you for listening.